0: Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you guys today. Um, we have been making our way through the Gospel of John, and we're going to continue doing that today. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. There are sometimes you're preaching and you're in a place that is strange and unfamiliar in the Bible, and this is not one of those times, is it? Uh, John chapter 3 is one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, and it contains maybe, maybe the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. Uh, you've probably heard this verse before. You may have seen it on a yard sign or a billboard or on Tim Tebow's eye black that he would wear in college football games, John 3.16. It's famous, and it's famous for really good reason. Um If you've been around church as a kid, you probably had to memorize this at some point. So many of you probably have this rolling in your head. It might be in King James or whatever, but it's in there at some point, right? This is a very famous passage. And the reason is because it is a great and concise summary of the gospel, isn't it? The story of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And if there's a faster way, a faster single verse to point someone directly to the heart of what it means to follow Jesus, I I don't know it. Um, This is why this verse is so important for us today. John 3.16 also brings us right to the main idea of the gospel of John that we've been studying and will continue to study. In writing his gospel, John the Apostle, he wants to bring people face to face with Jesus. He wants us to see Jesus and believe in him, and by believing in him, to have eternal life. This passage is going to answer to us the how of following Jesus, how we are saved, how we have life in Jesus. And so today, as we look at this passage, we're going to see how belief in Jesus brings us to God's gifts of rebirth and eternal life. It's worth noting, we want to say this at the beginning, that um, when we're talking about famous passages and famous verses, they're actually easier to overlook in some ways, right? They can become so familiar to us that we can read them without hearing them, that we can say them without understanding them. And so let, this morning, as we read through John chapter 3, as we read John three 16, let's remind ourselves today of why these verses are so treasured, of why they are so valuable to us. And let's remember that even as familiar as they are, they are still teaching us, they are still forming us today. So let's turn in God's word and see what he has to teach us in these pretty familiar passages. We're going to read a lot. We're going to read in John chapter 3, we're going to read verse 1 through 21. This is what God's word says. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sounds, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is, is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Church, let's pray together as we study this passage. Father, we love you and we love your word. We love this good news, this gospel message you give to us this morning. And we pray that you would tune our ears and and bring our hearts ready to see these beautiful truths and to respond as we should. Father, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your eyes. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this story, this famous verse, is, is part of a story of a religious leader named Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, who's coming to meet with Jesus when he's teaching in Jerusalem. And he starts out very complimentary, right? He's not coming in an antagonistic way. He really wants to know something about who Jesus is. And, and he says, we, we know that clearly God is at work in your life because of these signs that you've been performing, these miracles, uh, what John has been pointing out already. Um, and so, he, he recognizes something good here, something of God, but he wants to know more. He's essentially asking, who are you and what are you here for? What is the point of this ministry that you've started? That's a good question. And he's going to get his answer and more. Nicodemus is going to get more than he bargained for because Jesus is just going to unload on him this beautiful, deep, rich Christology, this, this theology of who he, he is and what he has come to do. And Nicodemus is going to have some trouble tracking with him at first. It's a lot to take in. He's going to tell us about so much about who he is, why he came, and how we can be saved through him. Now, there's a lot of it in this passage that we could focus on. There's a lot of theology. There's a lot of Christology here. Um, John Piper is a famous pastor. He preached four weeks on just verse 16. So there's a lot of things we can do. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at the idea of belief, all right? The belief. Jesus tells us that we must believe in him in order to receive eternal life. Belief is the key here. Belief is what stands between the danger of condemnation that all people face in our world and the promises of abundant life that God offers. Belief is the key. John 3 tells us that we are saved through belief in Jesus. We are saved through belief in Jesus. It is this belief that brings us to God's gifts of rebirth and of eternal life. And John 3.16 highlights that this is the difference maker, right? Everything rests on this. This is the pivot point between uh, our perish and danger of perishing, being condemned, and between eternal life and rebirth. It's the key for followers of Jesus. And it's the requirement that Jesus gives us here, in order to be saved, this is what you must do. This is what it requires. This is the path to salvation and is the only path. With belief, we have everything, and without it, we have nothing. Nothing at all. So it's a good question to say what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean? These are harder questions than, than they seem sometimes, right? Because believe is such a simple, easy word. And so we say, oh, believe in Jesus. What does that mean? What does it look like? How do we do this? The most basic definition we have for believe is to consider something to be true, right? Um, So, I believe that today is Sunday. I hope you're with me there. Um, I believe that this room has a ceiling, that we're sitting in a building, right? We can say, oh, yeah, sure, I believe that. I I verify that the, the words you have spoken are true in my understanding. Sure, that's easy to say. And so, we could say, I believe in Jesus, meaning that the things I've heard about Jesus, I'll Considered them to be true, right? I think he was a person. Um, I think that he was a, a you know first-century Palestinian Jew. Oh, okay, great. This is this is where belief begins for sure. We have to believe the information that we've been given about Jesus. It starts in our minds. It starts in our heads. We have certain information that we have to agree to, that we have to put, that we have to believe in. We believe that he was a real person. As I said, that he did these miracles and works that are recorded in the gospel. We especially believe in in what Jesus told us about himself. We believe that he spoke the truth when he told us who he is. John 3 tells us the story of the gospel that we must believe. It includes the historical events that we have to affirm. The incarnation that Jesus was sent by God from heaven. That he became a human being. That he came to earth as a child born in a manger. It tells us that he was raised up on the cross, to bring salvation to others, that he was resurrected, that he was brought back from the dead to bring life. These are truths and events that must be believed. Claiming that Jesus and his actions are only symbolic is not good enough for us. There's a school of thought that says that what the Bible is telling us is spiritual truths, that it's using these stories to teach us things that are you know, kind of true in a spiritual sense, right? But that the details aren't important to us. No, that is not enough. To believe in Jesus is to believe in the historical, real events that happened 2,000 years ago. These things really happened. These were real people at real times. Jesus did these things, and our salvation rests on that. Jesus doesn't save because of an idea. Jesus saves it because of actions that he did for us. So we have to believe in these things, believe in these real, historical, physical truths. But this knowledge, this head knowledge, isn't actually enough. That's not all that belief is. It starts there, but it includes more. We have to do more than just know information. And James chapter 2 warns us about this. In James chapter 2, James, the, the brother of Jesus, says, it's great to say true things about God. Good job. You should do that, right? He says, you say you believe that God is one. Yep, good job. He says, the demons believe that right? The demons know more about God than we do. They have more experience with him. They are spiritual creatures who can understand greater things than we can understand, but the demons are not saved. They have information, but they don't have belief. So don't have the kind of belief that is just in your mind, that is just knowledge, because that's not enough. That's not where we need to go. More is required. Belief that John is talking about here requires more than just our heads, but our hearts and our hands. It's about trust. True belief in Jesus means that we trust him, that we give ourselves to him in complete confidence, that we trust in him. The classic example is, uh, of trust is not just that I think this will happen, but that I put my money where my mouth is, right? Not just that I believe that this is a chair, but that I will sit down and put my full weight in it. Not that I believe that airplane can fly, but I climb on the plane and let it take off. It involves our whole person, not just what we think, but what we do, what we believe. That is what the Bible calls faith, putting our trust in Jesus, not just collecting facts about him. One of the sad truths of our day is that there are whole groups of people who spend their lives studying the Bible, but they don't believe it. They don't believe it's true, and they operate from the starting point that these things are impossible to happen. And so I'll just study it as this interesting book from 2,000 years ago. There's head knowledge, but there's no belief. Belief is the ongoing permanent trust in him, not something uh, that we do once, but something that we are continually doing. That's why we call Christians believers. We are the believing ones, the people whose life is based on what we have believed, what we have put our faith and our trust and our weight in. One theologian describes this as receiving Jesus in all that God is for us in him. That's a little confusing, right? Receiving Jesus as everything that God has done for us in him. We trust everything that the gospels tell us of who Jesus is. We trust everything that he has done for us, and we give it our full weight. We give it everything we have. We build our lives and entrust our whole selves on who Jesus is and what he has done. That's belief. And of course, if this is what belief is, it means that we have to know who Jesus is. And that really gets to the heart of what Nicodemus is asking here. Who are you? That's what John over and over and over again in the gospel tells us. We have to know who he is. We can only know Jesus, and we can only know God, but what Jesus has told him about himself. We must trust his testimony about his mission and about his identity. So there's a couple things here. We're going to go through them quickly because this whole passage is about who Jesus is. I want to highlight a few things for you. These are the things that we must believe with our head and our hearts, the things we must put our weight in about who Jesus has told us he is. In verse 11, 12, and 16, we hear that Jesus is the one who is sent from heaven. This is the incarnation that God came to us, that God put on flesh and became a human being who would live the same kind of life that you and I would experience those same temptations and trials. As John chapter one says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God himself who was sent to save us. He is the one sent from heaven. Secondly, he is the one who gives a unique testimony. This is in verse 11 and 13. He starts talking about we, we give witness to what we have seen and heard. He says you can only be a witness if you've been there yourself, if you've seen it, if you've heard it, if you've experienced it firsthand. And he's saying, I'm the one who's experienced this firsthand. I can tell you about God because I am the one from heaven. Because I am God. Because I know the Father and I know the Spirit. So Jesus has a testimony that no one else can have. His words are the very words of God. And we should cling to them because we can't get that information. We can't get that knowledge from any other source. It can only come from Jesus, the one who comes from heaven. Thirdly, Jesus is the one who was lifted up to save others. He draws us back to the Old Testament. There was a a time when Israel needed to be saved from their sin in this plague of snakes. And so Moses was told to build a bronze serpent and to raise it up on a pole. And that if the people looked at that serpent in faith that God would save them, they would be spared from this plague. Jesus says, I am like that serpent. I am going to be raised up so that people can look on me and trust in God's forgiveness. He's the one who was crucified on a cross, who is raised up and executed so that we can be saved. He's the one who is lifted up to save others. And finally, he is not only the means, but the object of our belief. Let me tell you what I mean here. The snake in, in, uh, in the desert, that was just a means, right? It was just a metal snake. There's no power in that snake. It wasn't anything special. And eventually, they threw it in a box and had to get rid of it because the people started worshiping it as a god, right? It was just a thing that God used. Jesus is more than that. Jesus is not just the pathway to get us where we need to go. He's the destination. Jesus is not just the, the means of getting us to somewhere else. He is everything that we are going for. He is the place where we want to be. He is the one we want to be connected to, John tells us in chapter five that Jesus has life in himself. If we want eternal life, it can only be found in Jesus. We have to get to Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in him have life in him, verse 15 tells us. And that is why there is no other way to be saved. Because Jesus is not just a way to get somewhere. He's not just one road up the mountain to the place we're trying to go. He is the destination. He is the object of our worship. He is the, the, the one we want to get to. It is all about getting to Jesus. He is the life. He is everything we are going towards. That is why we must believe in him and trust in him and cling to him. It's all about Jesus. So let's sum this up. What does it mean to believe knowing that this is who Jesus is? Belief is affirming and entrusting ourselves to all that Jesus tells us about himself. And all that he does for us. Belief is building our lives on the gospel. Affirming is in our heads and trusting is our hearts and our hands. Everything that we're told about who Jesus is. And then building our life on that. That is what John is telling us here. That is what Jesus is drawing us to. This is the only way to be saved. To receive eternal life. Where does this belief Lead us. Leads us to rebirth. Jesus tells Nicodemus that in order to see the kingdom of God, in order to come to God's kingdom where he rules, where we are in right relationship with God, to experience the good promises of God, we must be born again. And of course, Nicodemus gets all hung up on how this would even be possible. He kind of misses the point here, right? It's like it's a metaphor, Nicodemus. Have you ever heard of it? Uh, But um, don't take this too literally. Jesus is using images. To speak to us about spiritual truths. Right? He's using these vivid images to tell us about what it means to do this, what, what it means to change our life. He's speaking about the new life and the new nature that God gives us when we believe in Jesus. And Jesus is looking back towards the Old Testament. He speaks of being baptized, of being reborn in of water and spirit. Of water and spirit. And this is this is going back to the prophet Ezekiel. Who looked forward to the Messiah who would come and save his people, who would come and give his people a new heart. The prophet was speaking to the people of Israel when they were at their worst point. Their sin had been so terrible, it had been so built up over centuries that they had to go into exile. They had to be removed from the promised land and all of the promises that God had given for them. And in exile, at their lowest moment, God says, I'm gonna have to step in. He says, You guys don't need a second chance. You guys don't need some behavioral therapy. You guys don't need more punishment. You need a new nature. You need a new heart to become new people. And God says, I will do that for you. This is what Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 says. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you that you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit that I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. God is gonna make them new people. And right after this in chapter 37, we get this image of bones on the ground, dead and dry. There's no life in them until God breathes on them and flesh comes and muscle comes and he raises up new, living, breathing people. This is the new life. This is the rebirth that he's talking about. Bones becoming living, breathing people. And here's the connection. Jesus talks about the water and the spirit. The water cleansing from sin and the spirit putting a new spirit within you. Jesus is fulfilling this. He is renewing us by his spirit. And this is the how. This is how our belief in Jesus gives us new life. We entrust ourselves to him and he does the work. He renews us. He breathes his spirit on us and gives us new life. Those who believe in Jesus are made into new people, a new heart, a new spirit, a new nature. And it's so important to to remember that this is not something uh, that we are doing or can control, right? This is not something that we do by working hard enough, by following the rules enough, or believing like hard enough and sincere enough. No, we trust ourselves to God, and he does the rest. That Jesus compares this new birth to the wind, Like the Spirit working to the wind. He says, you see the wind, you feel it when it comes, but you can't grab it and control it and harness it. It's mysterious to us. We don't always know and understand everything about it. The Spirit is the same way. We see the effects of the Spirit renewing us. We see people whose lives are changed. Church, you've heard testimony of people in our church who come and say, my life is different. It doesn't look anything like it did before. And we see that this is is not something that I could do. This is something only God could do. The new birth is God's gift to us. Don't brag about it. Don't think that you've stumbled onto this, this secret that you have because of your goodness or your, or your intelligence or anything. Just praise God that he has saved us. And all we have to do is trust in him. All we have to do is praise the God who saves us and makes us new. This is belief in John 3, 16. This is rebirth. This is how we are saved. If this is the truth, if this is the gospel of how we are saved, then it means it's really important how we respond to this message. How do we respond when we are offered the chance to believe in Jesus, to trust Him with our mind, our heart, and our hands? I think that this passage shows us three pretty common reactions that sum up a lot of the people Jesus encountered and a lot of the people that we encounter too. And the, the responses that we can bring as well. There are three responses to Jesus. The first is rejection. Rejection. A flat out rejection, unbelief of what Jesus is saying. Jesus says in verse 11 that his testimony has not been received. He says the light has come into the world but the darkness did not understand it and ran away from it. His identity his words spoken from God, and his witness about who God is and what he has come to do are denied. They are rejected. They are tossed aside, often angrily. And this was a common reaction we see in the Gospels. This was especially common of the religious leaders who should have known better, who should have seen how Scripture was pointing to him, but they did not. They, they ultimately culminated in their execution of Jesus, of their fake trial and nailing him to a cross. And this has been a reaction that we've seen all around the world for 2,000 years. There are many who hear the gospel and reject it, who choose to try and go another way. There are many who see the gospel as offensive. And you can think of other religious groups who find the cross very, very uh, just just offensive, just just troubling and, and, and evil in their minds. And some who see it as silly, as ridiculous as that could never be, that could never happen. Before whatever the reason, they do not believe. Sometimes belief is, or unbelief is about ignorance. We don't know God. We don't know it. We've never heard it before. It's still not there. It's still believing in some other lie. Sometimes it's explicitly believing untrue things about God, clinging to those things, being told the wrong thing. These are people who are led astray by by other teachings, other religions. And sometimes it's choosing to persistently live in unbelief, To hear the truth, to know we should believe it, but to refuse to do so. That's the worst kind, because we know what we're doing. But all of them are bad, and all of them, John tells us, lead to this terrible danger. Verses 18 through 20 talk about this. The danger for all who refuse to believe, all who are continuing in unbelief. All who do not believe will perish. They will remain in spiritual death, and they will face the wrath of God for their sin. And ultimately, their sin is choosing to reject God. She didn't say, I will not follow you. I will not believe you. I will not let you be God in my life. I will do something else. Verse 18 says that any who do not believe are condemned already. What this means is that Jesus didn't come into a neutral world, did he? Jesus didn't come into a world full of a bunch of neutral people who had two choices, good or evil. No, he came into a world that was evil, that was broken, that was full of sin. The condemnation, the judgment had already come. They were already guilty. Everyone who Jesus talks to, everyone who the gospel reaches stands condemned because we are guilty of the crime. And so we are in terrible danger, a world hopelessly broken and darkened by sin. And as a result of this rejecting Jesus, the one who God sent to rescue us from darkness, it's just death. Jesus comes as the light of the world. But when we reject him, we, re- choose to re- we choose to remain in darkness. John says this because we love the darkness. The darkness covers up what we're doing. It covers up our shame. It covers up our brokenness. We think we can hide in the blackness. And that if we step into the light, it will reveal how far away from God we are. People felt this when they saw Jesus. When they see someone who is perfect, who is holy, it only shines a light on their brokenness. When Peter met Jesus, he said, he fell to his knees and said, go away from me, I am unclean. When we're trapped in our sin, we run from the light. We keep away from it. Jesus is the illumination and the revelation of God. He is all that is true and good and beautiful. And he shows our nature and works to be evil, untrue, and broken. And so a rejection of the light is ultimately a refusal to see and understand the truth. It's a refusal to be saved from perishing. It's a refusal to accept God's offer of salvation. This is the response of refusing. This is unbelief, and it is bleak. It is it is a scary warning. This brings us to our second reaction, and this is kind of a middle way here. This is being non-committal or indifferent. This is not a rejection of Christianity. It's not pushing it away, declaring it offensive or or ridiculous but it's kind of passing interest, lukewarm. Eh, I don't know. We'll see. It can be someone who's interested, or what we would say, they're, they're open to it, maybe, someday, but they put off. They're not willing to commit. They're not willing to do any more than kind of think about it for a time. This can look like kind of bringing Jesus into a bunch of other things I already believe, adding him on to what I've already got going, maybe. I can b- mean really, I'm still trusting in this, but I'll I'll think about Jesus. I'll say, oh, he was good. It can even look like those who say, oh, Jesus is a great teacher. He has a lot of wisdom he can share with us, but the rest of it, I don't know. But there is no indifference to Jesus. We either trust him, we either believe, or we don't. We see this in Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus has a lot of positives. He's come to Jesus. He's asking good questions. But there's a lot to be desired too. When does he come? He comes in the middle of the night and he's kind of like lukewarm, all these questions. He is scared to be seen talking with Jesus. He's not that interested in getting to the truth that he is compelled to go there. He's dipping his toe in the water, but he doesn't want to dive in just yet. And we don't see him make any choice here. We see him be on the fence to stay in his confusion. He's trying to uh, be noncommittal, he's trying to be half in. But he has not believed, at least not yet. He's unable to see and understand the full meaning of who Jesus claimed to be or understand what Scripture is truly taught. And so Jesus kind of rebukes him. He says, you should know this, Nicodemus. You should know better. You should be here. The noncommittal find themselves in the same place, ultimately, as those who actively reject Jesus. They do not believe. If faith in the Son of God is the only way to inherit eternal life, and is commanded by God Himself. Then, a failure to trust Him is as much disobedience as unbelief. There's no halfway. Being non-committal, being in, the, in halfway, it's still rejecting. It's still refusing what God has offered us in Christ. We stand apart from Christ, <laughs> or pardoned by Christ. Those are the two choices. We are condemned, or we are pardoned. This is because Jesus is the life. We cannot partake of it in any other way. There is no life apart from Him. There is no salvation in any other religion. There is no sincere unbeliever, right? There is no person who has never heard the gospel but still is sincere enough and and pure enough in some way to find life on their own. No, there is no way apart from Jesus. There is no alternative. We either believe who He tells us He is or we reject His testimony. There's no picking or choosing. You're in. Or you're out. And so this brings us to the final response we can have to Jesus belief. We can believe in Jesus. These are those who trust Him, who trust what He said. They trust in who He is and they receive Him as their Lord. And in Jesus, they receive rebirth and eternal life. John talks about these people who come into the light. Whereas those who reject God, they're trapped in the darkness. They're hiding there. They're rejecting the light. They're running from it. No, these people step freely into the light. There's no shame, right? There's no condemnation. There's no judgment left. They are declared innocent in Christ. And so they freely, they joyfully step into the light, they know that it is God who has carried them, and it is God who has, who has brought them here, it is God who is working in them to accomplish what is true and what is good. And it shows us the fundamental difference between these, these two ways, between unbelief and belief. It's as stark as life and death, as dark and light. We can be with, the, with Jesus who gives us life, or we can be apart from him. Jesus is really giving us here in John 3 a preview of the end. In many other religions, apart from the revelation we have of God, we are all wondering what comes after death. And we are all wondering what comes at the judgment day, at the end when God will judge all things. And in most other religions, you're left with a degree of unknown, saying, I hope I did enough. I hope I made it there. I hope I'm a good person in the last account. I hope when my eyes close for the last time and I stop breathing, I find something good waiting for me and not something bad. Jesus says you don't have to wonder. You don't have to spend your life in uncertainty. He says, I'll tell you right now. And all you have to do is believe. If you believe, you will be there. You will experience God's eternal life. You will experience God's favor. It is done. It is secure. You are there our eternal destinies are apparent now. We don't have to wonder, but still, the judgment day has not come yet. And so, this warning, this two sides, this light and darkness, this condemned and this saved, is not meant to uh, to condemn us without hope. It's not meant to make us prideful as those who are saved uh, uh, versus those who aren't. It's meant to say, choose wisely. It's meant to say, believe wisely. It's meant to say, come to Jesus. And it's significant here that Jesus says, whoever believes, that's still open. Anyone can come and believe. Our destiny is is told to us, there's no uncertainty, but it's not locked in stone yet. Any can come forward, any can come to believe, any can come to receive eternal life, to come and exalt Jesus. And this is our last example. John the Baptist here is the best example of one who has come to Jesus, who has placed his life and belief in him, and who will trust in him. In the final verses of this chapter, we didn't get to read them, and we're not going to read all of them, we get this little story tacked on about John the Baptist. And a dispute arises amongst his followers. They're nervous that so many people have started following Jesus and aren't following their master. And so they're kind of saying, you know, John, like, what's going on? Like, are we going to figure this out? Like, what's happening? We're, We're losing followers here. And John really swiftly and sternly says, no, that is not what this is about. He says, I'm great with them going to see Jesus because that's what God has given them to do. I'm not the show. I come to prepare the way, but I'm not the way. He says, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just the best friend. And so I'm not here for this show to be about me. I'm here to say the groom is here. And I'm excited. I'm I'm telling everyone about him. I am here to put the light onto Jesus and on his way. I'm not to put it on myself. And he summarizes in verse 30 when he says this great line. He says, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. That is what it means to follow Jesus, to believe in him, to say I must decrease, he must increase. We must exalt him. We must decrease with our our freedom, our wills, our preferences, our privileges. These must go down and Jesus must come up what he calls us to do, where he leads us, where he sends us. This is is what follows after John's statement here and it's, it's a beautiful exaltation of Jesus, the one who has come to save. This is verse 31 through 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the gospel repeated again, that Jesus is above all. He is the one who has come from heaven. He is the one who has the words of God. He is the one who has life. We must believe in him and exalt him. He must increase. We must decrease. When we look at this whole chapter, which tells us how to be saved, Tells us what it means to believe in Jesus and build our life on him. It comes not just with information but with a challenge. Every time Jesus talks here, he doesn't say you in the singular, like he's just saying, you Nicodemus. He says it in the plural. He's saying, You guys, all of you. This is a challenge. You, you all must be born again. You, you all must believe so which response will be yours? Will we reject Jesus? Will we ignore him? Or will we believe in him, exalt him, and receive eternal life? Let's pray, church. Father, we must decrease, and you must increase. Father, I pray that we would believe, that we would build our lives, that we would entrust ourselves to you, that we would see and believe and rejoice that there is no life apart from Jesus. Father, I pray you destroy any unbelief, you destroy any distraction from the gospel from Jesus in our lives. And you make us into people like John who go about saying, I believe in Jesus. That we'd be people who are sharing the gospel, who are calling others to believe in Jesus and receive this life. Father, we love you and we praise you for this good news you have given us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.